So if I asked you if you were lonely, if you were generally lonely, what would you say? What would you say if I asked you if you're lonely? Think about that. Also imagine this day with me. You and, and this is for, I think the, the illustration is, is, is uh, in the context of marriage, but I think if you're not married, you can kind of put yourself in this position as well. It, it applies to both. But imagine you and your spouse have your alarm set for 7 a.m. And one of your small kiddos wakes you up at 6.30. You groggily step out of bed, help them find some food, get them started so you and your husband or wife can get, begin getting ready. And by seven, you're dragging your other two small children out of bed because they ha- you have to get going. You have to move. You have to get them fed and you have to get ready and dressed and, and ready for school and all, and all of that. And in the chaos, and I want you to imagine this, in the chaos and the commotion of trying to get all of this ready, you and your spouse are able to, to, to have a few exchanges, but these exchanges are stuff like, hey, the, uh, a, a little, little Johnny has a, has a, uh, has a, uh, a basketball practice, and, 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 and little Joe has, has a piano. Who, who's going to pick up who from basketball and piano, and who, who's going to take the toddler with them when they go to pick up? And so you bark out some instructions back to one another, you decide, and you are out the door a little before eight trying to get to work. You arrive at work at 8.30, let's say, and you're surrounded by people all day. Maybe you fire off a few emails that you're supposed to email. You, you text a few people. You have a few meet, really important meetings that you have to be in. You do some other stuff on your computer and maybe ex, uh, exchange pleasantries to your coworkers as you're doing different things. And then 5 o'clock comes around. You scramble Uh, to pick one of your kids up from piano, you grab them, you whisk them home, you sit down for dinner at 6.15, you talk maybe a little bit about the day, how it went, highs and lows of the day, and by seven o'clock, you and your husband or wife are trying to put the kids down, get them cleaned up, put them down for bed, they get down at eight, you and your spouse plop down on, let's say, the couch just, just to rest, just to recover, maybe one's on the, watching TV, one's uh, looking up stuff on their phone, maybe checking some email, maybe checking a sports score or whatever. And in between that two hours or so from eight to 10 of screen time, you're able to talk a little bit about the next day. Hey, uh, who's going to pick up this at the grocery store? Who's going to pick up uh, the, the kid from basketball tomorrow? Um, what are we doing tomorrow night? What are we having for dinner? And that you exchange that information, and then you go to bed at 10, maybe read a little bit, and you're asleep by 11, and you wake up the next day, and you do it all over again. Now, if I told you that this pattern of living is, is headed quickly for a life of loneliness, would you agree with me? Like, this is pretty common. This is pretty common as I, as I talk to people and they're thinking through and describing their typical day in their life. And you may disagree with me that this breeds loneliness, but here's, here's what I mean. You are not alone on that day that I just laid out. You have very little alone time. You are surrounded by people, but all of your interactions are trans, transactions, okay? They're, they're, they're what's going on, what do we need to do? There are no deeper connections 
to human beings. There's no talk of dreams or goals or meaningful things that are happening in the news and how that affects our lives and meaningful things that are happening in our family and how that affects our family long term. There, there's, there's none of that, I worry, in a typical day. And there's little emotional connection between people. This could be you and your roommate, it could be you and your spouse, you and your parents, and there's a lack of intentionality in that particular day that I've just laid out. I think when we think of loneliness, we think of aloneness, and that's not what I'm talking about. Studies over the last 10 years have have shown that, that just being around people does not make someone less lonely. It actually could make loneliness worse. And we're talking about loneliness, it's kind of hard to define because we want to kind of define it. Well, what, what is someone lacking that is actually lonely? I think that's how to define what it is. What is someone lacking that causes them to be lonely? And I would say that it revolves really around uh, a d- deep connections to other people, meaningful connections, the the fact that we are known deeply by other people and we know other people at a deep level. I think this is kind of what um, is the opposite of loneliness or what we are lacking when we are feeling lonely. Some of these research studies have shown, um, and I'll read a few of them here, that, that um, the, the, the number of Americans with zero close friends has tripled since 1985, so over the last... 30 years or so. And when somebody responded in, in, a, in, a, in a large group, how many friends, close friends do you have? The largest answer, the most popular answer is zero. No close friends is the most popular answer. Um, the average number of people in, in America feel that they can talk about important num- matters with someone has fallen from three people in their life to two people in their life over that same period of time. In a general um, just survey of loneliness, 40% of just a general public say they're lonely. And it's probably over 50%. It's probably much higher, but there's something still a little shameful about admitting that you're lonely. So when you're filling that out, a lot of people probably are not quick to admit they're lonely. But if you really had to press in, there is some loneliness. So that number's probably over 50%. One researcher and I believe physician says that loneliness can be as deadly as smoking 15 cigarettes a day because of all the unhealthy behaviors that are directly connected to loneliness. So loneliness causes us to do things to our body that could be as harmful as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So hopefully you see that loneliness, I think, is a huge issue in our culture. But I don't think many of us are quick to admit that, yes, we're lonely. Like we see the symptoms of being lonely. We see the fruit of being lonely. But I think we're all all kind of, I think, still slow to really admit, yeah, I'm lonely. And a lot of us think that, yeah, well, I'm around people all day or I'm an extrovert. And so there's no way I can be lonely. Again, defining loneliness as meaningful connections where we are deeply known and we know others at a deep level, that is kind of the opposite of loneliness. That is what we are looking for. But I think as we get into Genesis today, the question we ask ourselves is, why is loneliness a thing? Like, why do all of us, I think, at the deepest levels crave to be known and to know others? 
Like, why is that even a thing? And I think, once again, it goes back to the way we were created. So Genesis has answers for us today. So we're continuing to work our way through this book, and we've been in in this book for a couple of months now, and actually in these first two chapters for a couple of months now. We're going to spend today and next Sunday in chapter 2, and then we'll be moving on to chapter 3, and the pace will, will begin to pick up fairly quickly. But once again, the reason why we're spending so much time in these chapters is we have to understand how God has designed life to work, how he's designed creation, how he's designed our role to fit into creation, and how he's designed us to actually live in this world. And Genesis 1 and 2 has given us plenty of answers to think about in regards to creation and why we are here. God made us in his image. We are made with dignity and respect and an intrinsic value, and he gives us a task. He gives us a role. He says, be fruitful and multiply and rule over creation, have dominion over creation. That is given to all human beings. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. This is called the cultural mandate. And we are, when we are doing our task, we are living that out and being good stewards of what God's given us. Everything thrives. Creation should thrive. Animals should thrive. Plant life should thrive. Humanity should thrive. This is the way God has designed it if we are being good stewards of all that he has given to us. And every single human being in history has been given that task. It's been given that task. So we've looked plenty at how man and woman, how humans have, what, what our role is as it relates to creation, other forms of creation. But for the next two weeks, we're going to really zero in on what does it mean for humans to interact with other humans, which maybe the majority of our issues, the majority of our anxiety and stress could go back to how do we interact with other human beings, whether that's marriage or roommates or parents, children, or what all of that, how does this work? Okay, so let's look at Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And I want us, as we read this again this time, I want us to think about um, how, what does this say about how we interact with other human beings? So let's read it again. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that, that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man had call, called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So you'll notice some similarities between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. If you've been reading along with us or you've been following along each week and, and, and uh, coming here for the sermons. But Genesis 1 is, takes a more chronological view of creation. Some think it's, it's, it's a poem and written in that language, so there's rhythm. It makes sense. It goes through all six days. Seven days, actually, God rests. It goes through these days, and then you get to Genesis 2, and it's still talking about creation, but it's really zeroing in on day six of creation. 
where humans were created, where humans were, were made. And so this is what this uh, particular passage is really focusing on, um, greater detail, what happened on the sixth day. So the primary verse we're going to look at is Genesis 2.18. And we'll finish next week. We'll cover the rest of that passage I just read. So Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So what is really, really interesting about this, if you think about the context that what we've been reading here, is that Adam is alone at this point in the garden before sin comes into the world. He has an unimpeded relationship with God, a very open relationship with God. He's in the Garden of Eden, the most beautiful place that we could possibly imagine with all the blessings and all the fruits and all, and all the animals and all these things that are in the garden. And we just imagine that, and then God says, this isn't enough. Like, just think about that. God is saying that as, as this currently exists, this is not enough for Adam. For one human being to be here without anything else, it's not enough. Adam hasn't sinned. There's no sin in the world, but yet God is telling us here that it's not enough. This is incomplete. And it doesn't mean God made a mistake. It doesn't mean God's having second thoughts. It's like a painter that's painting and the painter steps back. It doesn't mean he's made a mistake, but he walks up to one part of the painting and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add something to this. I'm going to complete this idea that I have in my mind for this painting. God didn't make a mistake. He's just adding to the creation at this point. And he says the answer to Adam's aloneness is a helper, a helper suitable for him. Now, what, what is it about this word, word helper? Okay, It's kind of a weird word in this context. And this is one of those times when the, the English translators are trying to tra translate a Hebrew word into English, and there's just not a good English word that gets at this idea of this Hebrew word that they've translated helper. The Hebrew word um, is, is pronounced azar, and it's used in, when it's used in the Bible, in Hebrew, it's, it's, most of the time it's used referring to God, as God relates to humanity. And more, most often it's used for the Holy Spirit, okay? And so when we, when we use this word help, we actually have to remember how God has helped us, okay? One, one commentator says that, um, it actually gets at this idea of providing, providing what is lacking in the one who needs help. Okay, so someone needs help with something, and this helper is brought along by God to provide something that the person needs. And this is the same way when we're interacting with God and the other places this is used in the text, that we need help from God. So God comes alongside of us and is a helper. And we'll get more into what this looks like played out, but sometimes that word is, is, is kind of used as, a, as a, 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 a term that kind of puts women down. And that is not the case here. It's not the case here because this idea is used of God in most of the scriptures. An example to think about this playing out in, in maybe everyday life is a parent helping uh, one of their kids with their homework. Okay, So the parent in this scenario is the helper. Okay, Parent is... The helper. And so <clears throat> first that it means that the, the parent has to be better 
has to be more equipped to actually do that homework than the kid to be able to help them. So there's something about the child that is incomplete when it comes to doing this homework. And second, it means this, this idea of helping means that the person who is helping uses their power, uses their knowledge, uses their ability to support the child. We don't do the work for the child because that would be enabling what the child's supposed to do. The child's supposed to do this work on their own. So the parent comes along and uses their power in an appropriate way, in an appropriate place, so that the child will flourish, will learn how to do the homework on their own, and be able to thrive without the parents in school. So this idea of helping is a, is a supporter. It's, it's giving something that's lacking in the person who needs help. So what is God up to here? In this story, thinking of this narrative, why would Adam need a helper? Why would Adam need a helper? Well, if we think back to just the facts of who God has shown him to be so far, he reveals himself to creation. God is doing that. That's his primary goal is to reveal himself to creation. That's why he creates. And God creates human beings in his image. We've looked at that. And when it says in his image, this is a triune God. This is a God who's one essence but three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is, this is who God is as he is creating. Um, and then he also gives us a job, gives us a task. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over it, have dominion over it, subdue it. Okay, this is, this is our goal. So this is who God is who's creating, and this is the goal he's given us. So based off these, these truths, I think there are two very important reasons why God tells Adam, it's not good for you to be alone here. First, God has existed as the Trinity through all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship and relationship and harmony and love and communion and community, okay? This is the Trinity from all eternity past. So if he's creating man in his own image, he creates Adam, how can Adam truly experience what the Trinity has experienced from all eternity? Unless Adam has somebody with him. So God creates someone who is like him, another human, but yet different. A woman. Okay? So the Trinity, got one God, three persons who are all different. So I think God is mirroring here the Trinity when he creates woman for man. And, and as in turn, man for woman. Because okay? we need each other to complete that communion that is laid out in God's image. And the other thing, the other reason why is that <clears throat> we have a job. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. And he's basically telling Adam, you can't do this alone. You are incapable of completing this task, being a good steward without help. Let it help me. Not someone suitable for you to do this. And the most obvious example of this, there's many of them, is giving birth to children. Okay? The be fruitful and multiply thing wasn't going to happen without a woman. Okay? And so that idea right there, even that one example, is, it kind of makes it, gives this idea of this is why Adam needed help. Adam was insignificant um, in the sense that he couldn't accomplish what God had called him to do without Eve there. And we're going to touch a lot more on this, more specifically next week when we dig into marriage, male and female, and all those kinds of things. Um, and you may be asking, does this, is this passage teaching about marriage? And I think it is. 
primarily because other New Testament passages quote this passage and go back to this passage when they are teaching on marriage. So I do think primarily in Genesis 2, this is talking about marriage. But we haven't got to Genesis 3 yet. And we will in a couple of weeks. And we know what happens in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve rebel, disobedient to God's commands. Sin comes into the world and everything is broken and busted up. Relationships are a mess. God even tells them that your marriage is going to be really hard now. It's going to be really, really hard because of sin. And I don't think that's just marriage. It's relationships in general are a mess now. They're not the way they're supposed to be. It is sin in chapter 3 changes everything. So as we think about Genesis 2, as it relates to marriage and singleness and all those things, we need to look back through Genesis 3 to understand what does Genesis 2 mean for us now in this world that is broken and fallen and messed up. So those of you who are single in here, you're in good company. You're in good company. The Apostle Paul, primary leader of the church, other than Jesus, wrote a lot of the New Testament, was single. He was single. And Jesus, who, who is referred to as the husband of the church, was not married in the way that we would think about being married. See, Paul and Jesus, who in their earthly lives were single. So Genesis 2 can't mean now that every human being should be married. It can't mean that. So what does this mean? And how does this um, kind of interact with this idea of singleness? Well, Paul helps us in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 28. Verse will be on the screen. I don't have to worry about turning there. Paul is talking about marriage here in the context of a sinful and broken world. And Paul has felt it. He is, he, I mean, he has the list in Corinthians about all he's been through, shipwrecked, tortured, imprisoned. He's got this thorn in his flesh. All of this stuff, Paul is feeling the weight of a broken world, and he says this about marriage. Verse 28, chapter 7, uh, 1 Corinthians. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. So he's saying it's not a sin if you marry. And if a betrothed woman, kind of like an engagement, marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Okay? So Paul is saying in this context, it is better not to marry. Eh, you should think twice about getting married in this culture, in this world, because things are so busted up. And he'll go on a little bit later in this, in this paragraph to say, um, when you're married, rightfully so, your family is going to take your attention, your time, and your energy away. And it will take it away from the things of the kingdom, potentially. Ministry, devoting all of your time to serve a group of people because you don't have a family. Could allow you to go to places overseas as a missionary that taking a family to could be really, really difficult. So he's, Paul's kind of saying, think about it. Think about being married. So he's not saying it is a sin or not a sin to be married or remain single. Okay, so I think he's helping us interpret Genesis 2 in light of this fallen and busted and broken world we find ourselves in now. So a couple of things, I think, coming out of this passage, this 1 Corinthians passage, is um, marriage will never um, be its perfect fulfillment. It'll never be what it was supposed to be in Genesis 2. 
It never will be. So to have this kind of these overblown expectations of marriage, I'm talking to singles or those of you who are dating or maybe those of you who just got back from your honeymoon, if you have these overblown expectations that marriage will somehow fulfill you completely, that is idolatry. And that, that image and that viewpoint will come crashing down very, very hard if you are looking for marriage to be your God. So I think one thing out of this passage, Paul's clearly saying that, hey, marriage doesn't solve all of your issues. And that, I think that's clear there. Now, on the other hand, I think what this passage is teaching, that it means there are some people that, I think one, will, will be kind of called to singleness, and that's appropriate. But there will also be people who are not called to singleness, who desperately want to be married and are not married for a season. Um, and I think in Genesis 2, um, I think... What it would look like is like if, if Genesis 2 happens and the fall doesn't happen, then we probably all would be married because we wouldn't have any sin issues. No one else would have any sin issues. So I think the whole marrying each other thing would be so much easier because everyone would be the person. Everyone could be the person. Now, scripture doesn't say that, but I think that's what, that's what we can take from Genesis 2 and as we read into that. But I want to really... Um, um, just empathize with those of you who are single and who want to be married. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And it's a result of the fall in Genesis 3. And um, just want to recognize that that's not easy. And just hearing of a passage like 1 Corinthians 7 does not make those feelings go away. And I understand that. And um, I, I'm, I'm sorry that um, that you desire something that you don't yet have. Um, but to, 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 to want to be married is not sinful. Loneliness is not sinful, okay? It's not. Like, God hardwired into us to, 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 to feel lonely if we don't have someone around, okay? That's the way God, God made us. He hardwired that into us, um, so, some more implications, I think, of, of this passage. First, I think that means that if, if it's not completely talking about marriage in Genesis 2, then it means human friendships are very, very important. Human friendships are very, very important um, because they fill the roles that marriage potentially could fill in a lot of cases. Okay? Partnership. Um, love, companionship, brotherly and sisterly love, uh, being able to stand shoulder to shoulder and accomplish God's purpose for your life, those kinds of things. Um, and I do think that it, those of you maybe in here, if, if there are people in here that still are wrestling with this belief in God, I would say that the desire to have companionship, not just in marriage, but just to have people around that love you and that you can love, um, is a, it gives evidence that we are created and that we are designed to feel that way as Adam would have been if we don't have that. And if, if, you're, if you think we started by molecules running into each other and that's how life began, I have a tough time jumping from that uh, story of creation, how we were created to uh, complicated, intricate human beings that long in a deep, deep way for companionship. I just don't understand how those two things come together. And so I think my answer would be that was Genesis 2. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. It's unhealthy. It's not good. 
not sinful. He just says it's not, it's not good for this, this to be the case with a human being. And I said it briefly, but I'll say loneliness is not a sin. It's not a sign of immaturity. It's not a sign of weakness. Um, it, it's the design of God. He, he wrote this on purpose. And so I will say to caveat this, that you, now your sin could be causing you to be lonely. So there is some self-awareness here. You could be doing something that is pushing people away. Okay, so, but loneliness in and of itself is not a sin. But we're broken, we're sinful, we can push people away, we can create this loneliness for ourselves. But So there's some self-awareness there that I think needs to happen. So what does this mean? I really want to get practical here. So I want to say three things briefly to, to marrieds and singles, to everyone in here, and then I want to say one thing specifically to each group, marrieds and singles. So um, for everyone here, I think an easy application is you've got to get in community. You have to be known and you have to know other people. Like we talk a lot about that here, but I mean, just imagine like he told Adam that it's not good to be alone and God was right there with Adam. There's something about another human being that allows us to relate to God in a way that we can't um, being alone or isolated from people. We have to be known. And what this means is you have to commit to being in community. You have to commit to showing up. It has to be consistent. It doesn't just happen overnight. It takes a while to get to this point to develop these relationships with other human beings. And once you're there, you work towards being vulnerable. And that's hard for most of us. But if you're consistent and you show up and you get to know people, that vulnerability will come easier than it would be if you just show up one day and expect that vulnerability to happen. And as other people are vulnerable, you show love. You show respect. You show care to those people in community who are being vulnerable. That's number one. Get in community. We have missional communities here. In those missional communities, we break up into fight clubs. Um, that's why we do that. One of the primary re reasons why we talk about family so much. Two, quickly, social media is a counterfeit form, if you don't know, of deep and meaningful relationships. And I say counterfeit because it does work for a short period of time. If it didn't work, then it wouldn't be such a big deal. We wouldn't all be, most of us, be on social media. But it works for a short period of time. Then you need a little bit more. And then you need a little bit more. And then you need a little bit more, and, and then you're just kind of up and down based off of likes or who's commented or you're looking at someone else and comparing yourself to them. I mean, it just becomes a relational mess. So I'm not saying don't do social media, but if you're thinking, wow, I have X amount of friends or X amount of followers, and that is curing the loneliness, you are being deceived big time. So I encourage you, it's okay to do social media. I'm not ripping on that. I am ripping on it if that's your only form of human connection. You have to have face-to-face -face relationships. Three, um, don't make an idol out of your spouse or wanting a spouse. I touched on this a little bit here, but um, I think when we, we can get into marriage or have the idea of marriage, and it kind of takes the place of God, and so I would just caution you that Jesus is our Savior if you have faith in him, not your wife, not your husband, not your potential wife or potential husband. Jesus is your Savior, and if you make that other person your Savior, 
in dating or in marriage or even in your mind, but especially in relationship, you will crush them because human beings were not meant to be saviors. We were meant to be compatible with each other to show us our savior to a greater degree. But do not make your spouse or your potential future spouse your savior. It, it will crush them and it is misery for that person. Okay, one for singles. Um, I, again, I've touched on this, but I just want to reiterate, uh, marriage does not um, cure loneliness. It doesn't. Does it provide deep partnership? Yes. But do not get married primarily because you're lonely. A lot of good reasons to get married. Marriage, marriage is, is wonderful. But if it's primarily because you, you're tired of being lonely, don't get married. Don't get married. You'll probably make a bad decision on who you marry, and you'll go into it just with a skewed view of it. Okay? Connect with other people in the body. Get wisdom from them. Check your motives. Have other people peeking in on relationships. All of those things to kind of cover your blind spots. Because when relationships start... I know from personal experience, blind spots come out, and we are just blind sometimes to our relationships. Last one, for marrieds. Um, as far as going back to that scenario played out in marriage at the beginning, um, I'm gonna speak mostly to husbands here because I, I, wanna, I wanna get after you a little bit. Um, husbands, initiate the emotional connection with your spouse. Do not make your wife wait to try to beg you to connect emotionally with her. Carve out time, learn how to ask questions, look at her eyeballs, not someplace else, shoulder to shoulder, but look at her and ask, how are you doing? And if it, I mean, at least weekly, try to daily, but at least weekly, how are you doing? Don't wait for your wife. If you need some help, from somebody in your missional community, a guy who's been married a little bit longer, ask, how do you connect emotionally with your wife? Because honestly, ma the majority of men are bad at this, including myself. Okay, we, it takes intentionality, it takes energy, it takes effort, and it usually takes help from other guys in my life to figure out how to do this and when to do this. And it's okay to schedule it. Begin with, like, you're not good at it, so schedule it. Ladies, I will say one thing to you. We're not good at this. Please be patient. If it's a train wreck the first couple of times, let it be a train wreck. We're trying. We're trying and encourage us when we do it and tell us how much you enjoyed that. Again, we're insecure men. We need some, hey, that was really good. I really loved that time. We'll do it again. <laughs> we're simple. Well, if you give encouragement, we'll do it again. We did that, okay? So encourage us. But don't expect perfection the first time. But men, let's get after emotionally. Don't let that scenario play out every single day of your marriage that I, that I said at the beginning, where it's just transactional things just to try to keep this ship moving in the right direction. Connect emotionally with your spouse. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. Once again, we thank you uh, that you've given us um, something like Genesis, where we can clearly see um, the way you designed us to function in the world and the, the design to function amongst each other. Um, I pray that as we looked at loneliness today, I think the most important thing, I think, for all of us is just to be honest with ourselves. The majority of us are probably lonely to a certain degree. 
And I pray that those spots where we are lonely or we feel lonely, like I pray that you would help us recognize those things. And instead of turning to things that may be mindless, may be destructive, just because we want to medicate this feeling of emptiness that loneliness is bringing, I pray that you would, that would uh, allow us to recognize this quickly and that we would turn to you or turn, turn to other people if we are isolating ourselves that we'd have other people in our lives speaking truth, speaking encouragement, speaking life into us, and bearing our burdens as we live this thing called the Christian life. I pray as we go into a time of communion now that you would um, um, just speak to us as we're quiet for a few minutes, that you would um, help us focus our minds on what we've seen in your word today, and how you want to change us as a result of hearing your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.